Support for The Trail Less Traveled comes from New West Knife Works and the Mountain Man Toy Shop, offering American-made knife art and singular tools for the kitchen and field. New West Knife Works is located in Jackson Hole, Park City, Napa Valley, and at newwestknifeworks.com. Welcome to the Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstravel.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. We're in the studio with Gray Thompson. Gray taught geology at the University of Montana from 1968 until 2005. He is now an emeritus professor at UM. He's done big expeditions to Alaska, the Himalayas, the Alps, the Andes, the Karakoram, climbing all over the world. Gray, where did you grow up and how was outdoor adventure a part of your childhood? Well, I was born and grew up till I was old enough to go to college in uh, Western Connecticut. Oh, I'm a Connecticut Yankee. Western Connecticut is part of the New England Appalachian Mountains. And where I grew up was very rural, more rural than any place I've ever been to in Montana, largely because it was a long time ago and things have changed so much that communication and transportation make places that used to be rural not so isolated anymore. The town that I grew up in was Southbury, Connecticut, and it was geographically the largest town in Connecticut and the population was about 1,500 when I was a kid there. So very sparsely settled, and most of the people who lived there were uh, really just subsistence farmers coming out of the Depression. Geographically, as well as culturally, where I grew up was very much part of Appalachia. Very few people in my town had been away to college. Most people had just been born there, grew up there, worked there, and just stayed there. Because it was so rural, and I lived so far from other kids my age, that I didn't really get to learn how to play baseball or basketball or anything like that that involved team sports. But because we lived right at the edge of, of big woods in New England, this particular forest was about five miles across and 10 miles long, which is big forest in New England with no roads and nothing up there. And so my form of recreation as a kid was just wandering off into the woods. I started wandering off into the woods, I think, when I was four or five years old, and nobody thought that was unusual. Basically, I spent my early years wandering around through the woods, hunting and fishing, and mostly just fooling around, often by myself, sometimes with my younger brother. So to me, being outdoors, first of all, isn't something that happened all of a sudden to me. I sort of started out that way. And also, it didn't seem particularly adventurous. It was the normal way of doing things. What was really adventurous to me was when I got sent to first grade, had to go to school and meet all these other kids and do all these things that you do as a school child. But being in the woods and wandering around, even climbing, I discovered that I just liked to climb up and down rocks that you'd run into up in the hills. The terrain in that part of New England, in western Connecticut, part of the Appalachians, it wasn't really high rocky peaks like we have here in Montana, but they were rocky forested hills. 
It was really a beautiful place. I still, in retrospect, very much enjoyed being there and spending all that time that I did just wandering around in the in the forests. Ray, you taught geology at the University of Montana from 1968 to 2005, and now you're an emeritus professor at UM. What was that moment for you that you became interested in geology? <laughs> That's another good one. <laughs> When I was in high school in the same small town, <laughs> the principal discovered there, oh, there are these people called guidance counselors. So he hired a guidance counselor, and the guidance counselor came and gave us all tests that were supposed to determine our aptitude and predilections for a life profession. Well, my aptitude, according to the interpretation of this new guidance counselor, was either that of a chicken farmer or a geologist. And I'd raised chickens before, and I knew I didn't want to do that, and I had no idea what geology was. I'd never heard the word before. So when I went to Bates College in Maine, you get there and you're meeting with all the people who try to get you organized for your first semester. You had to declare a major, so <laughs> I declared geology, and I ended up in the very first introductory geology class, and I had such a good time learning something about geology, which is, as I say, it's a word I'd never even even heard before, that I just stayed with it throughout my entire professional and academic career. And you said you didn't have necessarily a moment where you knew that you wanted to be a expedition climber because you always were doing it? Well, there's a pretty big space between being an expedition climber and being a six-year-old kid wandering around in the forest, but it was a slow progression. Again, when I went to Bates College, we had a really active outing club, and I did a lot of activities with our outing club, but they were mostly hiking and canoeing, snowshoeing, skiing, and things like that. And nobody at Bates College at the time knew anything about technical climbing, knew anything about the fact that rock climbing or mountain climbing with ropes and pitons and protection and helmets, nobody knew that existed. When I discovered technical climbing was when I graduated from Bates College, I started my graduate work at Dartmouth College. <laughs> Very first day that I got there, I was just talking with different professors. There was a new professor there by the name of Bob Reynolds, and he was particularly agreeable to sitting down and talking with me. And it turned out that not only was he a new professor of geology, but he was also the faculty advisor for the Dartmouth Mountaineering Club, which is still one of the big mountaineering clubs in the country. Bob had just spent the summer in the Canadian Rockies, and his field assistant was Denny Eberl, who was the president of the Dartmouth Mountaineering Club. He was a senior at the time. Denny happened to be in the lab when I was talking with Bob, and I first met him, and he was sort of telling me about the department. He introduced me to Denny, and pretty soon we started talking about climbing, not about geology or academics. And Denny and I went out, and uh, Denny started teaching me everything that he knew about technical climbing at the time, which you know wasn't that much because there wasn't that much to know. It took him about 10 minutes to teach me everything he knew. And then he and I started climbing together, and it just blew up from there. And so Denny and I then became climbing partners over the next few years, did a number of big climbs together, and we still climb together. He's still a good friend of mine. He ended up becoming a very well-known geologist with the United States Geological Survey down in Denver and Boulder, Colorado. Since that moment in the lab when you met Denny, where has climbing taken you around the world? Oh, <laughs> probably easier to say where I haven't been than where I have been. I've climbed all up and down the Cordilleran from central Mexico up into uh, Alaska. 
Canadian Rockies, the Alaskan Big Peaks, the Montana Rockies, to be sure, Canadian Rockies, down into Colorado. Done a lot of climbing lately down in the wintertime, since now I'm retired and can get away. Done a lot of climbing down near the Mexican border in Arizona, New Mexico, Southern California, Nevada, and then down into Central Mexico. I've been in the Andes three times, I guess, in the Karakoram Range, in the Himalayas, Certainly in the Alps, a couple of weeks ago, just got back from spending a great month in the Dolomites in northern Italy, Baffin Island. Gray, I would love to know about the first time you came to Montana. Well, the first time I came to Montana was when I was an undergraduate. I had a terrible old French little tiny pickup truck, a Simca, and I'm sure that Simcas have gone out of business now and properly so. A friend of mine and I just got in the pickup truck when school was out and started driving west. We drove into Montana, saw Glacier Park, and I don't think we even knew where we were. It was just so spectacular that it just became an objective of mine to spend more time in Montana and in the Cordillera or the Rockies in general. I'm going to throw a curveball question at you. You're a geologist, and you said you're able to do more geology now than you were <laughs> when you were a professor at UM. You're now an emeritus professor from UM, and I'd love to hear about the geology around northwestern Montana, where we live. Right where we live around Missoula, there's one predominant rock type, which is the approximately billion-and-a-half-year-old belt supergroup. These are mostly siltstones, quartz-rich siltstones some carbonate rocks like limestones that formed in a huge depression that developed as a supercontinent. During this time, probably Antarctica and possibly a few other continents were jammed onto the western margin of North America, and they started to separate about 1.6, 1.7 billion years ago. It's just like what's happening in the East African Rift now. As the continent broke apart and started to separate, a big depression formed in between the two parts of the continent that were separating. And because it's a depression, it filled with water. And because it's a depression, adjacent streams flowed into the depression. And this was a big depression. It extended all the way from the Mexican border up into northern Canada, up into the Northwest Territories. So, you know, this isn't a small feature. But it ran right through where is now western Montana. So most of the rocks that you see around Missoula now are this belt supergroup. And they're quite exciting, except you have to look pretty hard to see much detail in them because they're fine-grained sandstones, siltstones, and as I say, some limestones. The other interesting kinds of rock that are important for climbing around here... The Bitterroot Mountains are two granite batholiths, one probably 80 million years old, plus or minus 10 million years, and the other one about 50 million years old, and that's the Lolo Domes is the 50 million year old one. They're some of the best rock around, you know, all the canyons up the Bitterroot, Blodgett Canyon, Mill Creek, Lost Horse, Kootenai Canyon. They're great climbs and great climbing crags in all these canyons, and that's the Bitterroot granite. And then the Lolo Domes, uh, Elk Rock, Tor Rock, Bonsai Rock, the Heap, which are also popular climbing rocks around here. They're the younger granite, the 50-million-year-old granite. The older granite, the one in Blodgett Canyon and Kootenai Canyon and up and down the main part of the Bitterroot, is interesting because it doesn't look so much like granite anymore. It has this approximately 20-degree from horizontal eastward dip of layering in the rock. And normally you don't think of granite as being a layered rock. 
But how this got layered was the Bitterroot Mountain Range, after the granite came in, because of the heat, it became thermally inflated, and it rose. And as it rose, the Sapphire Mountains slid off eastward and ended up where they are now, over 20 miles to the east on the east side of the Bitterroot Valley. Well, the sliding didn't happen along a single plane of fracture. It happened along a zone about a kilometer thick. It was like taking a deck of cards and sliding the whole deck of cards down a 20-degree slope. Every card slides a little bit over the next one down. And that sliding over a zone of about a kilometer in thickness produced this 20-degree dip in the foliation or the layering that you see in the main canyons in the Bitterroot. And if you look down the Bitterroot, even from Missoula, you see that the east face of the whole mountain range has about a 20-degree eastward slope. It's a pretty flat eastward slope into which the side canyons like Blodgett and Kootenai and so on are eroded. And so that sliding of the sapphire range off the top of the Bitterroots produced this really fascinating structure in the rock that produces this very visible layering anytime you walk up any of the canyons. And it also has a very profound bearing on the nature of the climbing and the rock climbing in those canyons. Great. I'd like to talk to you about another piece of geology that's not that old as far as geological time, Glacier Lake Missoula. Ah, that's another good one. The conventional wisdom now, a lobe of the great continental ice sheet that was coming south out of Canada, flowed across what was the Clark Fork River out near Noxon, and it dammed the river. And, you know, ice, if it's thick enough, can create a dam across a river, and it dammed up the Clark Fork. And, of course, the water behind the dam started to rise. And it rose and rose and rose until it became Lake Missoula. Periodically, and there's a pretty good controversy going on now about how often this happened, but periodically the water in the lake rose high enough that apparently it overtopped the ice dam and caused the ice dam to float. And, of course, as soon as that happened, it broke out right away. And there was this absolutely massive outflow of water from Lake Missoula that was thought to have created the Channel Scablands out in uh, Washington. I mean, just these huge eroded gullies. If they have any streams at all going down them now, they're tiny little streams that never could have eroded a gully that size, but it was apparently these massive floods. Well, now people think that a large part of the water that eroded the Channel Scablands didn't come out of Lake Missoula, but it came out of other glacial water outbreaks up near the Canadian border west of Montana in northern Washington. And so, as I say, there's a bit of uncertainty and controversy over that now. But, you know, Lake Missoula was basically just a big lake that formed because the continental ice sheet pushed a lobe across the outlet of the Clark Fork River at Noxon. We're in the studio with Gray Thompson. Gray is originally from western Connecticut, but has been living in Missoula since the 1960s. He taught geology at the University of Montana from 1968 until 2005, and now he is an emeritus professor from UM. He's done big expeditions to Alaska, the Himalayas, the Alps, the Andes, and the Karakoram. We will talk about that when we come back. The Trail Less Traveled podcast and international outreach programs are made possible by the support from listeners such as yourself. For the cost of a cup of coffee once a month, you can support the show on Patreon. Patreon can offer you a subscription-style payment method in the amount of your choice in exchange for priority access to the Trail Less Traveled visual series, 
exclusive content, behind-the-scenes footage, and ad-free podcasting. Please consider helping keep my fiscal raft afloat by visiting patreon.com slash traillesstraveled. We are back in the studio with Gray Thompson. Gray taught geology at the University of Montana from 1968 until 2005. He is now an emeritus professor at UM. He's done big expeditions to Alaska, the Himalayas, the Alps, the Andes, the Karakoram, climbing all over the world. Gray, now I'd like to talk to you about your first big climb, which might not necessarily have been big in terms of climbing for you later on in your years, but for you at that moment, it was your first big climb. You know, after I uh, hooked up with Danny Averill at Dartmouth, we spent that academic year, of course, dealing with classes and being in college, but we spent quite a bit of time climbing locally. And Denny had been out in Glacier Park and up in the Canadian Rockies the previous summer and said, oh, let's go there, you know, and uh, we'll go climbing. We bought a 1949 Chevrolet sedan for $65 and drove it out west to Montana. Denny had seen this peak in Glacier Park called Citadel that you can see right off St. Mary's Peak is this absolutely spectacular rock rib that rises right above the lake and is very steep and formidable and challenging looking. And so Denny said, oh, let's do that first. One of the things to realize about climbing and climbers is that the coin of the realm among climbers or the gold standard among climbers is to do a first ascent. And it can be a first ascent of a mountain. You know, you get to the top of a mountain that's never been climbed. Or you can do a, a new route that hasn't been climbed before on a mountain that might have been climbed by a different route. And it goes all the way down to rock climbs and even bouldering. If Somehow if you do the first ascent of any kind, whether it be first ascent of a whole mountain or just a, a new route on a short boulder or anything in between. Somehow that counts with other climbers more than if you do subsequent ascents of some routes are totally impressive because the routes are so difficult. But the first ascent is pretty much the, the coin of the realm. And so being young and having egos at the time, we decided, well, you know, we should concentrate on doing first ascents in this particular ridge on Citadel. Now I think it's called Dark Star. Hadn't been climbed, so we went and thrashed our way up through the woods. I was just up there a few days ago looking at the approach to the same ridge, and it just looked terrible. <laughs> and I don't recall it being terribly terrible when we did it, but of course we were in our early 20s then. We did the climb and it was a good challenging climb and it was eventful, but nothing out of the ordinary in retrospect at least. And we got down in one piece. We had to bivouac on the way, so we spent two days doing the climb. You know, it was a good enough climb that it was worth an article in one of the mountaineering journals at the time. So that was the first climb of greater than New England cragging scale that I was involved in. And, you know, by then, because we had succeeded at this climb and it was considered good enough to make its way into the mountaineering literature, we were pretty much hooked into pursuing first ascents. As I say, it was largely ego-driven, whether that's good or bad. After Glacier, you did Mount Logan, the second highest in North America. Yeah, we climbed the west ridge of Mount Logan, which again was an unclimbed route. On Mount Logan, it's certainly been climbed. Logan is the second highest peak in North America. And this was a month-long expedition. Fly in, you get landed on the glacier, and that's all exciting. There were eight of us on this trip, some from Dartmouth, some from Harvard, and a few other friends from New York City who did this 
particular climb. And again, it turned out to be a first ascent on a big mountain. So again, it got a lead article in one of the national mountaineering journals, a couple of the publications, and more feedback to do more good hard climbs. 15 to 20 pitches in that first big climb of yours in Glacier National Park, three climbs later to Denali, which was over 100 pitches. You didn't keep count, (laughs) but it was over 100 pitches. And Denali is bigger from base to summit in vertical distance than Mount Everest. Yeah, Mount Everest from the Kumbu Icefall is 8,000, 9,000 vertical feet. Denali, the side that we climbed was the south face. We, again, first ascend of the south face direct route on Denali. That is of the order of 10,000 vertical feet. If you go around to the other side, the south face of Denali, the Wickersham Wall is 14,000 vertical feet. And certainly the summit of Denali is quite a bit lower. It's 9,000 feet lower than the top of Everest, but the vertical distance from the base of the climb where you start climbing to the top of the mountain is considerably greater on Denali than it is on Everest. The reason is that Mount Everest starts off the Tibetan Plateau, and the Tibetan Plateau itself is 18,000 feet. So you start real high when you climb Everest, whereas when you climb Denali, you start at a considerably lower elevation, but you have to climb further up to get to the top on Denali. What's the geological story of Denali? Denny and I actually collected samples on the way up the south face for later analysis. Small samples, obviously, because we were carrying the darn things. But Denali is largely granite. It's a big granite pluton. But when you get to the top, you get into these baked shales. And shales is what was once a mudstone. So right near the top, you run into metamorphic rock. But the rest of it is all granite. What was that climb like for you? The standard route is the West Buttress which itself has its own difficulties and considerable dangers. But the South Face route that we did is certainly the most dangerous and certainly also one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult, routes on the face. It rises 10,000 vertical feet from the Kaheltna Glacier where you start. And it's just absolutely massive. It's concave. And Denali is right in a storm path off the Gulf of Alaska. So it gets huge amounts of snow. And because it's a 10,000-foot high very broad, concave face. The avalanche potential is just huge. And when we started out on this climb, we got up about six or eight pitches and wanted to stop for the night, even though the nights are pretty light in Alaska at that time of year. So we hacked out an ice platform under a slightly overhanging rock. And we hacked out an ice platform just big enough to take a very tiny mountain tent that we had with us for the two of us. And we had fortunately buried up a cache of gasoline and extra food. The way you do these, we used to do these climbs, big long climbs like this is you would climb up for a day, you'd make a camp, and then you'd go back down and get more gear, more fuel, more food, more climbing gear, and you do a couple of more trips up and down to this first platform that you make, and you'd stash your gear there. So that would be your next climbing base. And then go up another day, you climb up another day, make another stash or another campsite, and you move everything up to that campsite. It used to be called the Alaskan wave technique of climbing, the idea being that if you brought enough stuff to the base of the climb, the inertia would slosh you over the top. We got this first station built. We got our tent up for the night on this tiny ice platform that was probably only three feet wide, and a big storm came in. And just to shorten a very long story, that storm lasted for two weeks. The first night, the first avalanche came over early in the evening, and it ripped the fly off our tent. 
we had this little Alpsport expedition tent, ripped the fly off the tent. We were tied into the rock. You know, we had a rope running in the front door and out the back door of the tent. We were tied into the rope. Rope was into pitons or pins that we'd put in the rock on either side of the tent. That storm lasted for a total of two weeks. During the middle of the storm, it cleared after about seven days, and we packed up and left trying to make the next camp, and my feet started to freeze. It was very, very cold, even though the weather got perfectly clear after a week of continuous storm, and I don't know how many avalanches came over us. We lost count during the first night, but there were probably a 100 massive avalanches that came over, and it was just like laying under a train on the train tracks and letting the train roll over you every time one came over. We were under just enough of a rock that the avalanches would launch out over us and just create this huge roar and they create a vacuum that would suck the air out of our tent and everything would rattle and sometimes there'd be five or six of them an hour. It was a pretty impressive event. But anyway, we started out after a week and my feet started to freeze. We uh, had to go back, set our tent back up. And while we were setting the tent back up, our heads were down. We weren't looking around. And the storm was right back on us again with just renewed ferocity. We stayed there for another six days or so before it finally cleared again. After this two-week period of being pinned down, we uh, started climbing up again. I don't know why we didn't get out and quit, but we didn't. After another probably week and a half of climbing, maybe only a week of climbing, we made it to the top and uh, made our way back down. <laughs> and when we got down, we were flying with Don Sheldon, who was sort of the iconic glacier pilot, bush pilot in Alaska at the time. He and Jack Wilson had flown in World War II. And when they came back to Alaska, Don uh, set up, and he was the main pilot in the Alaska range around Denali. He flew out of Talkeetna. And Jack flew out of Logan, and Jack was the one who had taken us into Logan the year before. When we got down, there were other people on our climb because other folks who were part of our party were doing two different routes on the mountain. One group was doing the Cassine Ridge, which had been climbed by Ricardo Cassine and his Italian colleagues 10 years before, and others were doing the South Buttress, those two routes being on either side of the South Face route that we did. Anyway, Sheldon <laughs> got in, flew everybody out except Denny, me, and one other fellow, another friend. And then a 10-day storm came in. So we were stuck there in another storm with just the three of us while, uh, you know, Sheldon couldn't fly for another 10 days. So we got out after that. What happened during this four- or five-hour lull in the big storm that had us pinned down for two weeks, completely unknown to us, there was another party on the mountain at the same time. It was a party put together by a man named Joe Wilcox, and it was put together from a group of climbers from the Midwest and some climbers from Colorado. Originally, they were two different parties, one from the Midwest and one from Colorado, and they applied for permits to climb Denali. You had to have a permit at the time from the Park Service, and both groups had been turned down. And so they combined forces and reapplied to the Park Service, and the Park Service said, oh, okay, now you're strong enough, experienced enough party, although people have had trouble figuring out that rationale ever since. But while we were pinned down in the storm, they were up high on the Muldrow Glacier route coming in from the other side of the mountain and were up close to the summit plateau. And Wilcox and a couple of other climbers, the most experienced climbers in the group, went to the summit, came back down to where the other seven climbers were camped, and the other seven had decided to take a rest day before going on to the summit. And Wilcox and the other two checked in, and then they continued on down the mountain. And 
Of course, they were the most experienced climbers in that whole party, and they had left the others up there to get to the summit. And it wasn't technically difficult to get onto the summit from there, but what happened was the next day when we had this lull in the storm on the south face, those other seven headed for the summit, and the storm came back in, as I said, with just totally renewed ferocity and extreme cold temperatures, and they all froze to death. Seven of them died on the summit plateau while we were huddling back in our tent in the same storm. And uh, finally, when we got out after this last 10-day storm, when Sheldon got us out, the Alaska climbing group was coming in with, it wasn't really a rescue party by then, it was a body recovery party, just going up to look for these lost climbers. And they never did get them all. They never found them all. Gray, I'd like to talk to you about the Canadian Rockies, namely the North Faces, the first ascents you did on the North Faces. Let's first talk about why North Faces are more intense climbs, because they were most heavily attacked by glaciers during all of the ice ages. Yeah, the climbs that are most desirable in terms of getting a reputation as a climber, you know, filling out your ego, are the most difficult ones. And the most difficult ones tend to be the steepest longest ones. And in the Northern Hemisphere, during the Ice Ages, on the north-facing side of any hill or mountain is where the glaciers built up to be the biggest, generally speaking anyway, and, and where they lasted the longest, simply because the north face receives the least amount of sun. And so the biggest glaciers on the north sides eroded most deeply into the sides of the mountain and created the biggest, steepest, and generally baddest faces or sides of any mountain. Not only that, but because you know glaciers have been melting in the last 15 to 18,000 years. That is, the glacial maximum was reached about 18,000 years ago, and the glaciers have been melting back since then. The glaciers are best preserved on the north sides of mountains, the north faces of the big mountains. A lot of alpine climbing involves ice and snow climbing as well as rock climbing. And in the Canadian Rockies, that was actually pretty fortunate because a lot of the rock in the Canadian Rockies is limestone and shale, and it's not such great rock for rock climbing. But when it's full of ice or covered with ice and snow, why, then you climb on the ice and snow and, and you don't have to deal with, with marginal rock. The north faces in the Canadian Rockies, in the Alps, in most other ranges in the Northern Hemisphere, the north faces are the big, hard faces and the ones that have the most prominence in the history of alpine mountaineering. I think that's a, a reasonable way to, to put it. Gray, I'd like to talk to you about fear and how you handle fear. <laughs> in climbing, at least, when you get into a situation that might generate fear, you pretty much have to pay so much attention to what you're doing that there really isn't room for being afraid or at least for falling victim to the negative parts of being afraid. So I think I think it's a matter of concentrating and uh, it's not that you're fearless, it's just that there are more important things to pay attention to at the moment. <laughs> I'd also like to talk to you about ego. You said that back in the day when you did the North Faces, there was a lot of ego involved and how has that changed for you now? What oh, now I just like to climb. <laughs> The climbs I like to do most now are, you know, long, relatively easy rock climbs in places where it's warm and not raining. You know, like Red Rocks is perfect for that. Cochise Stronghold down in uh, Arizona. 
near the Mexican border is perfect for that. And, you know, pretty much in order to satisfy an ego-driven motive now, first ascents are the coin of the realm, and you have to do a first ascents. Most of the high-quality first ascents have been done, and the ones that haven't been done are so hard, so remote, or so dangerous that I'm just not terribly tempted to do them anymore. I'm perfectly happy doing climbs that have been done a thousand times before if they're really good and if they're warm and sunny. (laughs) Gray, have you ever had a close call with death, and what did you take from that as far as the lesson learned? about being on the south face of Denali during two weeks of nearly continuous avalanches. I mean, that's a kind of a bad scene. When we were climbing Logan, I actually fell down the north face of because I hadn't sharpened my crampons. I stepped onto ice off some packed snow, and, boy, my crampons just turned into roller skates. And I fell a couple of hundred feet down the north face of King Peak, which is a subsidiary of Logan. We were traversing King Peak on the way up Logan. I got knocked out, and it turned out I'd broken an ankle. I knew it hurt, but I didn't know it was broken until we got into Whitehorse a month later and had it looked at, x-rayed by doctors. But, I mean, that was a kind of a bad fall. I I was caught by the rope just dangling over (laughs) North Face, so when I regained consciousness, I was kind of wondering where I was. But again, you know, there, there just isn't time for fear. It's just more trying to do something about the situation, and maybe you get scared later in retrospect. Thank you so much, Gray, for coming into the studio and doing this interview. You're quite welcome. And I hope to have you back soon to talk about the Himalayas, the Alps, the Karakoram, and the climbs that you're going to do between now and the next time I'm going to talk to you. (laughs) Okay, great, great, Mandela. I'd like to end the show with three Gray Thompson outdoor adventure tips. Oh, you mentioned that to me, and I thought about it. And I thought about it enough to encapsulate it in a few very brief statements. So it sounds flippant or non-serious, but actually they're uh, well-intentioned and I think useful. One that's, I think, applicable to everybody in any sort of an outdoor adventure, but particularly applicable to climbers, is don't let go. The next one is always carry your own lunch. And the third one is stay warm and dry. You know, as I say, if you think about them at face value, they sound flippant and not serious, but if you kind of unzip them and think about them, I think they pretty much encapsulate what I think you need to do to stay comfortable. (laughs) I think those are great tips. What's your ideal adventure lunch? What's in your lunch bucket? Oh, a great big chicken sandwich with cheese and mayonnaise and lettuce and tomato. And uh, I just had one. I just was out bow hunting earlier this week, and that was my standard sandwich. (laughs) You have been listening to The Trail Less Traveled. I want to thank my guest for this week, Emeritus Professor of Geology and legendary alpinist Gray Thompson. Gray taught geology at the University of Montana from 1968 to 2005. Gray has been climbing since the mid-60s and has done more than a handful of first ascents on north faces in the Canadian Rockies and worldwide, including the Himalaya, the Karakoram, the Alps, and the Andes. Check out trail1033.com to see pictures, read biographies, and find suggested links from all of the guests featured on The Trail Less Traveled. My name is Mandela, your host of The Trail Less Traveled. Every week, I will be interviewing an adventurer about what they do, how they do it, 
and how you, yes you, can get out there and start adventuring in the same fashion. My safety tip this week is to remember to wear orange during hunting season. Especially put an orange collar on your dog if you're heading out on an outdoor adventure, be it rock climbing, mountain biking, hiking, horseback riding, golfing, or hunting. That's it for this week, Missoula. But until next week, get out there and shred the gnar. Because you know the thing about the gnar is, it doesn't shred itself. This episode's Patreon shout-out is for my good friend, Emily Johnston. I would like to thank Emily for her support on Patreon, as well as accompanying me on the Grand Canyon this summer. Emily has asked for her shout-out this month to be going towards Milo Fowler. You can follow him on Instagram at Navajo Milo. Milo was born in the Navajo Nation capital and raised in northern Arizona. His photography career started without a camera as he guided wonderful people through the now-famous Antelope Slot Canyon. Milo has traveled all over the world and focuses on capturing what he calls the sweet light of Navajo land and helping others learn about their cameras in his workshops. His images have been featured in National Geographic and in magazines like Native Peoples, Arizona Highways, and many more. His photography has led to powering over 250 homes across Navajo land. At this moment, roughly 20,000 homes don't have access to electricity or running water. Milo Fowler has been using the proceeds from his photography and work to install Goal Zero solar kits on homes and Hogan's. I highly recommend that you check out his work and support him by visiting fourthworldimages.com. Again, this episode's Patreon shout-out is for Emily Johnston, and she has dedicated it to Milo Fowler. Find him on Instagram at Navajo Milo. That's M-Y-L-O. You too can get a shout-out by becoming a patron. Visit patreon.com slash trail less traveled.